Hey everyone, it's Lem here. Um, look, the contents of this episode are highly divisive. So if you find the topic of Israel and Palestine upsetting in any way, we advise that you skip this one. Obviously, if anything discussed is triggering for you, please seek help by visiting Lifeline's website at lifeline.org.au or by calling 13 11 14. A listener production. This podcast is being recorded on Gadigal land. We pay our respects to the traditional custodians of this country and elders past, present. We extend our respect to any First Nations, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people joining us today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of It's A Lot. Today's guest I'm super excited to speak to. I met them, um, I think, like three years ago at a Clementine Ford show. They were speaking. They were incredible. I promised them I'd read their book before I interviewed them, and I haven't. It's a, it's a recurring theme. It's a recurring theme that happens a lot. I have ADHD. I get I get. I get a pass, uh, but we have the amazing, stunning Neva Zissen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hello. Oh, God. Thanks for coming in. Um, now, we've got you on for myriad of topics because you are such an amazing person. You're a poet. You're the author of Finding Neva. Also, the pronoun lockdown. You're a TEDx speaker. Pronoun you- lowdown. Lowdown. Oh, God, sorry. Yeah, Why it's, got- it's so fine. People have a lot of COVID trauma, so they really... Yeah, <laughs> I think my brain read lowdown as lockdown. Wow, that's yeah, really I'm, scary. I'm much, I'm much less carceral than that. Yeah, I was <laughs> like, whoa, yeah. okay. Like- <laughs> no, you're not the first. So many people have done that, and I'm like, okay, the, the, the COVID trauma is showing, yeah. It continues, yeah. baby, it continues. It continues, yeah. Well, it is still, it's still here. <laughs> Oh my god, it's still here. Put it low down. Sorry, Gorge. No, um, that's and fine. also, you're a TEDx speaker, <laughs> and you're also just an amazing activist in general. So I'm so stoked to have you on. Oh, thank you. Um, I want to get you on. I think the main thing, obviously, that I'd like to speak to you about is something that you've been very vocal about recently, and um, as a Jewish Australian person. And um, I think we'll just get right into it because it's a really heavy topic, and I've had a lot of requests from the Jewish community to get a Jewish person on to speak about this and your perspective and anti-Semitism rising with the genocide currently happening in Palestine and and the relations between Palestine and Israel. And I just wanted to get you on to speak about what your experience has been thus far as a Jewish person who is very, very vocally anti-Zionist and how that has altered your relationship with the Jewish community as well. So I guess my first question is, how has your outspokenness on anti-Zionism affected your relationship with your community so far? Uh, it's not been good. Mm. <laughs> You're like, it's great. Um, it's actually yeah, normal. <laughs> it's, it's chill. Um, I guess being a queer transgender person has been really helpful in that because it's filtered a lot of people out already. Right. Um, okay. So that's a good thing. Okay. <laughs> then, so you've already you know, copped the, part of the abuse. I've already copped it. I already know who I'm interested in and who I'm not. I already know. The, the other thing as well is that I'm really interested in this term community because I think that we misuse this term a lot, even within ourselves, to mean a shared identity, where actually what I believe community is, is something that is formed and created intentionally, something that is, you know, built through trust over time. I feel that within transgender communities as well, you know, not every trans person is my community. Like, mm-hmm. People who are my community are people that I've forged relationships with, who I trust, who I love, who I've, you know, intentionally chosen. And so even when we use the term Jewish community, what community are we actually speaking about? Because there is no monolithic community. There are lots of different Jewish communities. There are Jewish communities in in Nam. There are Jewish communities in Mianjin. There are Jewish communities on Gadigal country. You know, there's so many different Jewish communities. I am part of an anti-Zionist Jewish community. You know, I am part of many different communities. But the other thing as well is I didn't become an anti-Zionist overnight. Like this didn't mm-hmm. happen on October 8th or 9th or 10th. I've been an anti-Zionist for about five years now and I've been unraveling and unlearning my very Zionist upbringing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, how did your how did your pro-Zionist upbringing begin? Is it is it from birth? Is it a is it a direct um, education from your parents and your 
educators or is it kind of an unspoken assumption? Actually, sorry, can we define Zionism just in case somebody just jumped in? So true. What what is Zionism (laughs) that you're referring to? Well, I guess there are lots of different forms of Zionism. You know, there is reform Zionism, there's revisionist Zionism, there's socialist Zionism, there's lots of different kind of branches of Zionism. But I guess the fundamental belief at its core is that the Jewish people are a, a peoplehood that deserve a nation state. Uh, And that, you know, I guess the belief of what Zionism is, is that Israel is uh, Jewish self-determination, that that place is a place for Jews to return back to their homeland uh, and to have ownership and autonomy. That's my okay, sorry. That's that's my only interjection as a producer, just for some somebody who doesn't know. But so sorry, fair. Abby, back to you. And I guess another question is, in terms of people that are pro-Zionist, what is the value in that home state? Yeah. So I guess first I'll say that um, I often speak about how I was essentially assigned Zionist at birth. Uh, you know, and I think as a trans person who is a trans educator, a lot of this language really fits in quite well because my transition uh, as a trans person, you know, being assigned female at birth and, and coming out as a trans man and later as non-binary, although that transition was, you know, very difficult and very complex, I was quite lucky with the timing of that happening around 2013. You know, it was just a year before Laverne Cox was on the front cover of Time magazines, the transgender Mm -hmm. tipping point, you know, like so much was changing that I often speak about how transitioning from a Zionist into an anti-Zionist has been so much more dangerous and excommunicating for Mm -hmm. me within my own communities. So... I think within, you know, I mean, Australia's Jewish community is one of the most Zionist in the world. They have so many links to supporting Israel. Uh, The Jewish schools that I was educated in, you know, I was taught about it being the promised land for the Jewish people. I went to a Jewish youth movement for 13 years, which was, you know, a socialist Zionist Jewish youth movement where the the belief was that uh, we could create, you know, we could formulate this state to also be a democratic state for Palestinians, for Arabs, for Bedouin, for Druze, for all different kinds of people. Um, And that was kind of the premise in which I was educated that felt in line with a lot of my values. It felt in line with my feminism. It felt in line with my queerness. Like, it wasn't obvious to me that these things were actually antithetical until... I got actually more involved in social justice spaces and also had more friends that weren't just white Jews. Mm -hmm. So what, but what is the, I guess, notion behind, Israel was created after the Holocaust as a safe refuge for Jewish people. Do you mind explaining to those listening who maybe haven't heard anything about this, what you were brought up with in detail of why it's so important to have Israel. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the concept of Zionism did not come after the Holocaust. It was established before the Holocaust. And the other thing that people forget is that there has been, you know, Jewish critique and Jewish... I guess people who are against Zionism from the very beginning, from its conception, at first it was kind of just a fringe belief. And even what Zionism would look like, you know, I mean, it was never necessarily intended that there would be a monolithic state with a shared language even. The idea from a lot of people at the beginning was that people would come from their own countries with their own languages and cultures. It wasn't until Eliezer ben Yehuda decided that Hebrew was going to be a spoken language and kind of invented it himself, that that even became a thing. So, you know, I guess the the premise of having this nation state is that the world is unsafe for Jewish people, that anti-Semitism is rife, all things that, you know, true. And especially with the trauma of the Holocaust and the, the fact that many other nation states didn't want Jews, mm-hmm. they were like, Let's create this other country, which, you know, Biden has specifically said if there wasn't an Israel in the Middle East, we would have to create one for the interests of Middle Eastern, you know, politics and domination of these these fascist imperial states. And so it was the creation of this safe place for Jews to be Jews, for them to be able to express themselves. And that premise for me, when I was educated that it was, you know, a land without a people for a people without a land, which sounds very eerily similar to Terra Nullius on this stolen land. Yes. When that's the premise that you're educated with, that doesn't sound so bad, right? But it took a long time to then be like, oh, wait, it wasn't actually a land without a people. What happened to the people that were there? 
And why do I suddenly in Australia and those in the US have a right to return to that land when for generations I've not lived there or had any connection to that land and the people who still have keys to their own homes on that land don't have access to it and don't have a right of return. Why is Australia such a Zionist part of the world? That's a good question. I'm not sure I really know the answer to it so much. Yeah, I probably can't speak to what yeah. the, the history is specifically of that. What was your turning point in when, if you were growing up Zionist, what was a turning point for you? Was there one event or was it slowly talking to people? Yeah, there were many turning points. You know, I, I lived on stolen Palestinian land for 10 months with my youth movement when I was 18 years old. And I learned a lot about the racism that exists in Israel, the second-class citizenship of, you know, Ethiopian Jews, of Arabs who live there, of, you know, all sorts of people. I learned about queer politics. Like, I got a pretty um, good insight into what was sort of going on. And then I remember... I was very critical of Israel anyway, and I was actually taught that that was an expression of Zionism, that to be critical of Israel is like to be Zionist, you know, because you take responsibility over this this country and this land and you should criticise it. Um, and, okay. and that's also, for me, it's also such a fundamental of being Jewish is being argumentative. <laughs> you know, like yeah. that's, that's what it means to be Jewish. So when I see people shutting down these conversations so quickly, that feels so confusing to me because, you know, mm. there's always that, that comment of like two Jews is three opinions, you know, like we, mm. our, our peoplehood, our culture, our religion is based off argument, dissent, disruption, conversation, debate. That's such a fundamental part of it. So, you know, I was always very questioning of, of what was sort of going on, but I was a Zionist and I did really believe in Israel and, and had intentions to move there, as did many in my family. And it was sort of in... I mean, as I moved more and more into queer spaces, there was more and more pro-Palestinian discourse, which I was very triggered by because I was taught that that was anti-Semitic. So even seeing a Palestinian flag was triggering for me. You know, I would see it on someone's fridge and I would be like, oh, this isn't a safe place for me. If I heard the words from the river to the sea, God forbid, like, you know, I was triggered. And that trigger, I realized, was it was intergenerational trauma and it was also racism. It was mm -hmm. the ways that my intergenerational trauma had been weaponized and manipulated uh, and, and kind of covered by racism because what I heard was that Jews would be exiled uh, and murdered and sent away from this place. And I remember there was this moment, you know, of having conversations where I realized the very thing, the hypothetical thing that I am afraid of happening to Jewish people is the thing that is happening to Palestinians, that that actually is what is going on. And so a really big turning point for me was I was in Israel uh, for a family event in 2018, and I teed up with this organization called Breaking the Silence, who are an organization from within Israel of ex-IOF soldiers talking about the atrocities they committed. Uh, so they've put together testimonials and anthologies and books, and they're very controversial there and they've, you know, people have tried to shut them down um, many, many times in the Israeli government. Anyway, so I went with them on a tour of Hebron, which is the largest occupied city in the West Bank, Palestinian city in the West Bank. Now, you can read as much as you want. You can have conversations as much as you want. You can, you know, debate the facts and the stats as much as you want. I saw with my own eyes things that I can never unsee. I saw the sterilized streets in Hebron where Palestinians are not allowed to walk down. I saw shop fronts boarded up. I saw Israeli illegal settlements in the West Bank on the top of a hill with electricity and water and a gated community and soldiers out the front defending their space. And I saw slums on the bottom of the hill of Palestinians who have lived on that land for generations, having been removed over and over, getting evacuation orders over and over because they've decided that there's, you know, interesting archaeological digs to be done on that particular land. And then when they do those digs, they, what do they find? They find a mosque and they find a synagogue. And then they cover up the evidence of the mosque ever being there. And they say, look, this was, this was Jewish land. This, was, this is our land. 
Jews have lived in Palestine for many generations, but we can't act as if Palestinians don't make up many other people. Like, this is the issue. It's the it's the Jewish supremacy. It's this this faction that it was just Jews, or that it's just Jewish land, you know. And so, going on this tour, and I will never forget when I met a Palestinian activist, and you know, I said to him, he was telling his story about, yeah, just just what it's been like. And I said to him, so what's your solution? Like, do you want a one state solution? Do you want a two state solution? In my, you know, it's what twenty one year old naivety. And he looked at me and he said, I don't think you're listening. I can't get clean water. I can't get my kids to school without having to go through security checkpoints. This isn't about a solution. This is about like human rights, you know, and that just really hit me because I think so much of this conversation ends up in this cerebral space, you know, intellectualized. We're, we're, we're intellectualizing, but we're not talking yeah. through the heart. We're not actually mm. feeling what it would feel like, you know, when we say, and, and Bassem mentioned this of the humanity of texting people before their homes get bombed. Like, we don't actually think about what that would be like. We're not really going into the heart of what it would mean to, you know, try for who knows how long to have a baby, to eventually get pregnant, to go through pregnancy, to give birth to your child. I mean, birthing is like one in three people experience birth trauma. Like that is such a deep process to go through, to then raise your baby, to lose them in bombing. Like there is just no... I don't know how people try to justify that. I don't know how people can disconnect themselves from the humanity of what that experience would be like. And I fundamentally do not believe that anyone deserves that experience. I mean, this is what, what upsets me a bit about being told to get a Zionist on the podcast because people are saying to me, you should get the other side on, like you said, to intellectualise and to debate with, not debate with me, but just to have the other side shown. And I guess my thought process is, there's not really any excuse or any theory that you can bring to me that could justify what is happening in Palestine and what's been happening in, in Palestine. There just there aren't two sides to genocide. No. There aren't two sides to apartheid. Like you're not going to bring a Nazi on here to have a conversation with a Jew about what is anti-Semitism. You're not going to have, I mean, we see it in this country all the time where we have trans people on panels with anti-trans people. One person mm. is arguing for their right to exist and the other person is arguing that the other person doesn't have a right to exist. How could that be comparable? Well, it also would deeply concern me and upset me for Lem. So Lem's family is Palestinian. And having Lem in a room with someone who's denying her existence or her family's existence in Palestine, I don't see how that would be productive for anyone with the trauma that's currently happening in particular. You also you don't need to represent this this side when that's what all of the journalists in this country are representing. Are doing. When that's when that's where all the power is. This isn't an oppressed minority. Zionists mm. are not an oppressed minority. Zionists are racists. And racists don't deserve to have a platform. Man, like even me, this has been like such an interesting part of my job now to like be editing content like this and thinking like, oh my God, should I just let, um, you know, Navo say Zionists are racists? Like, do I cut this out? Because, you know, it's it's just been such an interesting time because I, I you know, I'm a Palestinian, like, like Abby said, but then I am seeing how upset people are getting over discussing this because they're conflating obviously Zionism with Judaism and I had a conversation with Naval before this this episode and they actually almost made me cry and I was just so taken by how can you have that level of empathy like I've lived my whole life being you know told that Palestinians don't exist being told that we don't really matter nobody discusses it everybody's uncomfortable about it where did you get like how the fuck did you get there you know like what happened in I mean, your brain? <laughs> <laughs> I think there are like two really main ways that I would that I would explain it. I think one, you know, and this is obviously not to conflate the realities of trans people with Palestinian people, but when you say something like I've been told my whole life that my people don't exist, 
I've also been told that my whole life. You know, I've been told that trans people don't exist, that trans people aren't real. I've been contested with, you know, I've been pushed out of spaces, like people refusing to use my pronouns, refusing to use my name, family leaving. Like, I, I know what that feels like in my bones. And I think what that means as well is that I'm less afraid to lose things because I've already lost them. And I just think, you know, we... I don't know how many lives we get, but if we only get one, I want to be brave. I want to be mm. in my truth. I want to be in what I know is right in, in the very, you know, depths of me. And I think by really fundamentally knowing my own suffering, my own experience, you know, working with the shadows that exist within myself, having love and self-compassion, I think means that I'm able to see other people's humanity more deeply. I think if we live our lives mostly disconnected from ourselves and mostly disassociated, it's very hard hard to humanize someone else because we haven't really fully deeply humanized ourselves. And then I guess like the other way I would say is, you know, my, my best friend, Elsa Stuart Rosenberg, she has been such a huge guiding light for me in so much of my learnings. You know, she comes from uh, an anti-Zionist family of generations. And I think as well, just you know, she she runs an anti-racist organization called Hue and just, you know, it's one thing to learn about racism. It's one thing to learn about sexism. It's one thing to, you know, again, like mm. this cerebral conversation, but to really fiercely love someone who has a very different lived experience from you, it's just earth shifting. It changes everything. You know, when you really fiercely love someone who is a wheelchair user, you're no longer thinking about accessibility as an afterthought, for example. You know, you're thinking, mm. will my friend be able to come to my party? Mm. <laughs> like, it, it becomes such a personal thing. I remember that Alice Pung um, spoke at a literary event that we did together once, and she said, you know, young people don't have to take courses on how to write diverse characters in their stories. They're just writing about their friends. <laughs> you yeah. know, and I think, like, that to me is like the key to intersectionality and to actually deeply understanding the realities of other people is really fiercely loving people with a different lived experience. And I would say that in a lot of, of cultural groups, they are really kind of isolated or separated or segregated from one another. You might not reach outside of your own community in order to meet other people who have lived differently, who have different lived experiences. And so that empathy is inhibited. Can I, like, as, as you're talking, I, believe it or not, have Zionist kind of counter thoughts to what you're saying. I'm Lens just like... researching <laughs> Zionist so sorry, rebuttals. So fudge a Lens on a comma Zionist. So you have got a Zionist on the show then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Um, no, but I'm actually thinking this idea of, you know, you're saying look at the streets, like the differences with the gated communities and all of that. And I hear a lot of this type of counter argument saying, yeah, but you're not going to be safe if you let the Arabs intermingle mm. with, with the Jewish states. You're not going to be able to have a neighbor peacefully live alongside you. And we need to protect ourselves as uh, you know, a Jewish state. Oh, and I can even hear some, somebody kind of commenting on what, how you're talking, saying, by the way, I'm challenging you. I agree with you. I love you. But um, <laughs> some, somebody saying like, oh, look at that lefty, like talking all about love and self-compassion. But really, when we come back to the, to the actual basics, we need actual military defense here because those people <laughs> literally kidnapped, uh, like held hostages, killed, I think, maybe 1,400 Israeli civilians like. What are you going to like? What is your argument to people who are telling you that Arabs are terrorists and Arabs are commit, committing terrorist acts? What even the Western media, what? Well, Abby? the Western media classifying saying Israel versus Hamas, like saying that every Palestinian is part of Hamas inherently. Like even that kind of basic understanding and that basic labeling is extremely dangerous and only adds to what you're saying. Yeah. So what, how do you respond to people saying like, how are, how are Jewish people supposed to protect themselves here? Well, I guess firstly, when people say, you know, Arabs and Jews can't live side by side peacefully, that's just not true. That has happened. That happened for 
a lot of human history. With my granddad, by the way, I this, told you about that. Yeah. Right, like there, there are actual stories of people who remember before mm-hmm. the establishment of Israel, you know, babysitting each other's kids and spending time with each other and sharing food and breaking bread. I mean, I have lots of Arab friends. Like I have lots of Muslim friends where we break bread and we, you know, share our experiences with each other. This impossibility, it comes from a scarcity mindset. And I guess my question is also like, how's it working out for you? Like, how, how's all the violence going? Is it going well? Like, have you managed to annihilate Hamas? Like, because this is not the first time this has happened. This happens every few years. You know, this happened back in 2021, happened in 2014. It ha- you know, it, it happens every few years. And how's it going? Is it going well? Do you feel safe? Is it secure? Like, I don't think having to be militarized equals safety. I don't, that, that's not how I define safety. You know, when I think of safety, I think playing in the streets freely. Like, I don't see people carrying guns as a measure of safety. Now, does terrorism exist? Absolutely. How do we categorize terrorism is also a really important conversation. You know, I mean, every time you have a white man who shoots up a school in the US, you never see the word terrorism used. I would like to see the word terrorism used for causing terror in lots of different factions. The things that I have seen that the IOF have committed, in my mind, you know, it it, it What's classifies... What's the IOF, sorry, Naval? Sorry, the is- Israeli Offence Force. Okay. Um, that is classified as war crimes and that is terrorism. You know, if we want to condemn terrorism, we need to be condemning terrorism everywhere that it is. It's an intentional I, act of violence. It's not terrorism. Sorry, I'm joking. This is like some, yeah. some of the lingo that's used. Like it's an intentional it's an act, act of violence. violence. That's the uh, whatever. Joke. Yeah, Bassam, whatever. Yeah. It's also just like, I don't know. It's just, it's just abuser tactics. Like it's just projection and it's just abuse. Like I don't need to know all of the history, all of the UN law, all of humanitarian law, all of this in order to say that what is going on is not right. Mm. Like I know it. I know it in my soul. I know it in my ancestry. I know it. I know it because that violence is what it takes to displace an Indigenous people from their country. I know it because I live on stolen land where that happened just 200 plus years ago and continues to happen every day. What will we see in 200 years in Israel if they successfully displace all Palestinian people, what they're going to do in acknowledgement of country in 200 Mm. years, what they're going to do a referendum about whether Palestinians might be able to have some sort of voice in the constitution. How's that going to work out? And the other thing as well is like, you know, I think it's important to reflect on why does a Jewish person have to come here to validate Palestinian pain? Why does a Jewish person have to say this is real when a Palestinian is sitting here telling you this is the story of my grandfather? This is the story of my family. I also would like to speak to you about a a common thing that I've had commented on my posts about Palestine or that I've had DM to me. And I'm sure, I'm sure you've had, in fact, I think you've posted about it, is the notion that if you were to go to Palestine as a queer person, you would be... You'd be, you'd be killed and therefore yeah, you shouldn't care about that cause. because there's bombing all the time there. Yes, there's bombing all the time. Yes, yeah, so yes, I, I would, really I would be killed by yes. Israel. Yes, <laughs> um, but the notion that Palestinians would, would kill you and therefore you shouldn't care about this cause – what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's a really it's a really interesting one. I, I kind of mm. I kind of love talking about this because I've I've gotten it a lot from within my community, and it's been really interesting the amount of transphobic language people have used to get that point across. Mm-hmm. Like they've used my birth name, they've misgendered yeah. me, they've called it transgender wokeness, and I'm like, okay, well, <laughs> this is a really transphobic interaction. <laughs> like yeah. I'm not feeling very safe from this. Mm. Do I believe that there is? homophobia and transphobia in Gaza and, you know, within Palestinian people? Sure, absolutely. Do I believe that there is homophobia and transphobia within Jewish people? Yes. Within white people? Yes. Show me a country, show me a group of people who are not homophobic or transphobic. Mm -hmm. Show me somewhere that it would be safe to be trans. Now, of course, the argument can come in about how safe versus whatever. Look, as a transgender educator teaching people about pronouns, I would never go to people who have just escaped war or bombing and ask them, do you know anything about pronouns? 
Do you know mm. anything about trans people? We're talking about a hierarchy of needs. We're talking about priorities. When people are trying to save their families, they're not really thinking about the gender spectrum. And I think that's pretty Sorry. reasonable. <laughs> I would like to... It's so true what you're going, saying, though. Like, Arabs I mean, are just like, yes, we're trying to survive. Thing, yeah. Yeah. Literally, yeah. I'm just like, what do you want? You know, if you give people all of their needs, if they live abundant lives, you know, if they have food on the table, as we do in Australia, as we are lucky to have in this country, then we can start to have these conversations. But mm. while you're talking about people who live in an open air concentration camp, no, I'm not expecting them to use my pronouns. And yeah, maybe I wouldn't be safe there. That doesn't mean that I only care about people's rights if it's conditional on whether they care about mine. That's not yes. my humanity. I care about people not being bombed, even if they're transphobic. Mm -hmm. Despite their policies or despite... Also, I think it's important to note that not every individual Palestinian is homophobic or transphobic. No, there are it queer is... Palestinians. Yes, of course. Yo, yo. So, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let... There we go. Yeah. So here's here's I think someone we prepared also... earlier. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of... I think... <laughs> I think Thank as well, you, it's, it's, it's It's likened to, say... I mean, it's, it's the same theory, say, if, like, currently, obviously, in the US, Roe v. Wade was overturned, someone's saying... To me, if the US was getting bombed indiscriminately um, in, a, in a similar way to say, well, why do you care about the deaths of those civilians? Because they have anti-abortion laws. Like they don't, con they don't control these laws or these ideas. And even still, that is just a cultural or like you said, there's, there's no room to be learning about these kind of like higher or, or higher levels of needs in Maslow hierarchy. It's not, that doesn't mean someone's value is completely diminished because they um, disagree with you or because they are living under the same oppression. Like queer people that are there are living under the oppression of these ideas regardless. Yeah. Also, anti-trans legislation is on the rise worldwide. I mean, the US yeah. is passing more anti-trans legislation. I mean, Florida, they, you know, banned any conversation around sexuality or gender. People were yes. having to leave their homes because they were removing children from their families if they had access to gender affirming care. That's, you know, that these conversations are happening here in Australia. As a trans educator, you know, like I can see these things are on the rise. I got called horrible slurs, horrible accusations against me more in the last few years years of my trans work than I have in the entire history of doing that work. So, you know, transphobia exists. It's everywhere. I don't know what to tell you. Like that mm. it, my, I still believe in people's humanity and their right to live safely regardless. Mm. Can I ask about, you just likened the, you know, Gaza as an open air concentration camp, which is very interesting. If I said those words, Damn, I'd be cancelled. So my question oh, I'll be to you. Too. <laughs> well, that's that's what I'm what I'm trying but to understand very is consequence. how do you how do you know where where the line is with calling out things right as they are? You just use the word apartheid. You used the word open air prison or open air concentration camp. Why are people, in your opinion, scared to call out things like that. I was having a chat with another Israeli friend of mine and, you know, I can have friends that I disagree with. And she just turned to me and said, it's not genocide what's happening in Gaza. It's not genocide. You're over, you're overdoing it. So it's now become a conversation about, well, what's a genocide? And then we're drawing these lines. So how are you using this language? And People are thinking that you're extreme using this language, I'm pretty sure. Like the average person listening would be like, oh, that's a little bit extreme. Is it extreme? And if it's not, where's the reason? Well, okay, let, let's just say for a moment it is extreme. Why is it not extreme to displace millions of people? Why is it not extreme to kill over 8,000 children? Mm. Why is it extreme to speak about that? and not extreme to do it. And it really reminds me of the ways that people get so upset about being called racist or sexist or homophobic or transphobic. They get more upset about that than the issues of racism, sexism, transphobia, or homophobia. You know, I, I just, like, it is what it is. If it makes you upset, do something about it. You know, I, I grew up with Holocaust surviving grandparents. I grew up seeing the images of the Holocaust. I grew up seeing mass graves, photos of mass graves of emaciated people. This is what I'm seeing now. Mm. I know how to recognize it because I know what it looks like. I don't really understand why I was educated to say never again and to understand what a Holocaust looks like 
so that I could stand idly by through another one. You know, we are not the only victims in the world. We are not the only people who have experienced genocide. Not to mention that it wasn't just Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. There were many other people who were murdered as well, you know. And these things have continued. They're happening right now in Sudan, happening right now in the Congo. You know, they're happening on this very land where children are removed from their families, where there are deaths and incarceration at at ridiculous rates, you know. I just... It's just true. (laughs) I don't know what to tell you. You know, it's upsetting. It's deeply upsetting. I don't want it to be true. You know, of course I feel, I mean, it's, it's, it's devastating. Like it devastates me. Do you think I feel okay with this? You know, you think I'm okay with like my people weaponizing our trauma in this kind of way? Like, it's also very interesting. The point at the top of your answer there about the word genocide, like, does it Obviously, it doesn't matter to Palestinian people, but just calling it not a genocide doesn't mean nothing bad is happening. Just, just saying, if, if you were like, okay, it's not, but it's semantic. Still what what word can we use? You yeah. tell me what word I can use. Yeah, you yeah. tell me. This is the other thing people are like. Oh well, you know, you can advocate for Palestine while not saying this, or you could do this without going so extreme. But every other time, I've been more mild mannered throughout the five years that I've been on this journey. No one's ever said, "Oh, that's a proportionate amount." Mm. Like any amount has always been way too extreme. Any amount of advocacy that disrupts the general mainstream perspective is too extreme. So I may as well be in complete alignment with my values. If I'm already going to lose relationships, if I'm already going to be cast aside, I may as well be honest about it. You know, like if you gave me a, you tell me how proportionate it is. Also, I'm sorry, but that's just not activism. Activism is not something that just makes everyone comfortable. I'm like, let's make genocide uncool again. Like, let's make people who are talking about genocide and saying fascist genocidal things like all Arabs need to be displaced or all Palestinians are Hamas or, you know, looking at photos of bomb children and saying, well, it's Hamas's fault. Let's make, let's make that a problem. Let's talk about why that's not okay. Like, why are people who are speaking out about Palestine getting their jobs revoked, getting mm-hmm. their opportunities removed? I mean, you've got journalists who are speaking out about having concerns that things are being misrepresented represented and they're being shut down and they're losing their jobs. I mean, I got banned from Grindr yesterday just for having a Palestinian flag in my name. Like the suppression and the silencing is a really deep concern. That is fascism. The suppression of other perspectives is a real concern and we should all be concerned about it. Call it whatever you want. You want to call it a prison or not or a strip or an area. I mean, it's not a nation state. They don't have their own rights and autonomy. They don't have their own access to water and food. They don't have their own trade. I don't know what you want me to call it. Look at the facts. You tell me what I can call it. But regardless, while we're having these conversations about what's it called and what's okay to say and what's not okay, children are being killed, Mm. you know? People are dying while we're having these up here conversations. Cool. Fine. Let's not even use words. Let's just make sounds about it. But let's do something because having those conversations is not going to do anything. And we should all be really concerned about the ways that the media are representing this and what they are capable of shaping the narrative into. This is a concern. This is not a democratic experience. It's not democratic to see our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese, who was at Free was Palestine rallies yeah, that so not weird. that long ago, now being manipulated in whatever way, whatever purse strings are being pulled to now be in the position. that We should be concerned about this. Can I ask you a really, um, as a white secular girly pop, um, can I ask you Mm -hmm. all a white secular girly pop silly question? Not even silly. I guess I just want people to... um, Those are my favourite questions. Yeah. (laughs) Is it to do with Grindr? Because that (laughs) might have pricked up when I heard that. I thought that there is some injustice going on there. Um, (laughs) That's where the injustice is. I guess also in terms of like, I think a lot of my white secular friends are genuinely sitting here baffled going... How, like, for example, if Australia, I guess the atrocities Australia has committed, let's say in terms of detention centres, offshore detention, I'm able as an Australian person who loves living in Australia to acknowledge that is an atrocity and I'm able to kind of separate my nation state from the actions of my government and not feel as though it's an attack personally on me. Can you explain the intergenerational trauma and kind of the upbringing of Israeli people and also Jewish people who are who are Zionists as to why criticism of the Israeli government feels like an attack on Judaism as a whole. 
Well, I mean, I will say that it's not monolithic. You know, I mean, yeah. there have been so many protests in Tel Aviv against what's happening right now in Gaza. Like, the, the, the families of hostages and the families of those who were killed on October 7th have spoken out against what Bibi is doing right now. Like, he's not really listening to the families. And he said that. He said that his intention is not even necessarily to get the hostages back, but to, what was it, neutralise Hamas or, or annihilate Hamas. So, you know, there, there, are, there is a lot of Jewish opposition to Israel and we're, you know, we need to distinguish as well, is it an opposition to Israel? Is it an opposition to the Israeli government? Because that's the other thing. And I think that, you know, what I've noticed in this time is that even people who were like significantly leftist or were pro-Palestine to some extent, there has been a huge polarization after October 7th. I think what happened on October 7th was so traumatic for so many people that it just really pushed people into a corner where they felt like this was the only thing that would be safe for them is to be within their own Jewish communities. And when you perceive anti-Zionism and you, and you perceive the comparison of, you know, what the government is doing with what Nazi Germany did as anti-Semitic, then of course you're in a state of fight or flight. And of course mm. you're feeling incredibly unsafe, you know? And so that's the way that most, that's the place that most people are coming from. And that's the thing is that, you know, at the, at the base of so much hatred and anger and rage is grief. When you kind of go deeper than the grief, hopefully <laughs> you will eventually find love, you know? And I think for me, undoing my Zionism. I actually did a course called Undoing Zionism, which was about a six-month course um, by Mira Stern, who is in on Turtle Island in the US. It was a Jewish-led space, and it was a space where we could grieve, where we could actually gather and grieve over what it meant to learn that a lot of the things that we'd been taught were not true, you know, to actually grapple with the whole other side of things. I remember we had a Palestinian facilitator who came in and gave the history of Israel or Israel and Palestine or, you know, and I knew all of those dates. I knew every single date. I'd learned every one, but I'd never seen it through that perspective before. I'd never heard it on the other side. You what know, was we the had, difference in the lens? It's hard to even describe the difference of the lens because I guess the way that I'd always seen it was that, you know, Palestinians were the ones who did not want peace or that Hamas was the one that was constantly instigating because I guess it's always from that point onwards. And I didn't learn about the Nakba. I never learned about what happened in establishing the state of Israel. So fundamentally the whole thing is skewed when you don't know that people's houses were stolen, you know, that, that some of them just had food left on the table because they fled. Now, I, I know that image. It reminds me of the Holocaust. Mm. <laughs> so I think there's just so much lack of information. And then there's also this kind of interesting sort of patriarchal aspect of like, you don't get to speak on something unless you know everything about it. I feel like a Zionist talking point is very kind of like dudes when you mention a band that you like and they're like, yeah. oh, well, if you like them so much, like <laughs> name three of your favorite Zones. albums. And then, and yeah. then even if you do, even if you do, they're just like, oh no, like you didn't get it right. Or like, you don't even know all the lyrics properly or whatever. Like it's, it's kind of that vibe. And like, you know, being raised, like presenting as a woman in my youth movement, like I didn't feel like I had enough of that kind of cerebral intellectual, you know, I'm a poet, I'm a storyteller. Like that's, that's more my area. I, I exist in the heart more than in that kind of like scientific, political, big P politic brain. I'm like a little P politics, social politics, social justice. That's more my area. And so I always thought I don't get to speak about it. I, I'm not, I'm not learned enough. I'm not educated enough in those ways. And that's part of how they kind of use that tool to stop people from speaking out about it. I think as well as a white secular girl after October 7th, it took me a, a little while to really feel confident enough to, to, to speak about or post about what's happening in Palestine because I really, really didn't want to add to anti-Semitism and I really, really mm. didn't want to discount anti-Semitism and, you know, the experiences of Jewish people for thousands of years. And my, and my fear was not only having people perceive me as anti-Semitic, but it was more so emboldening people that were waiting to be viciously anti-Semitic and mm. have them think, well, you know, this is the excuse and this is kind of a shield they can, they can hide behind. Um, so 
yeah, I, I that was it was a huge fear of mine. But then when I actually, I mean, it doesn't really take that much research or that much um, interest in in what's been happening. I mean, I'm very, I guess, why well, I am lucky that I have Lem in general, but very fortunate to have someone who is Palestinian in my world that I see every week that I can speak to about this. But it's very interesting the the weaponization of things like misinformation, like we spoke about with Bassam, and um, not knowing you know, what's actually happening and what is propaganda and what is a twist in a way has a different lens in it, like you were talking about before. So how much do you think these like algorithms and and the media lens and, and all these different perspectives shape things? Because even when I posted my Bassam episode, I got a lot of DMs from Zionists and one of them said, if you want to know how hard it is for Israeli soldiers, go and look at this person's Instagram. And I was, okay, maybe I am missing something because again, I'm just, I'm not, I don't have any real personal history with either of these communities as much as you disagree with that word. And I went and looked at what they wanted to show me. And this man was eating yogurt with chocolate in it on his stories, his soldier that they wanted to see me what they're really going through. And it made me really think that this person may, must not have anything that we do in our timelines. And the algorithm is so strong that they think they uploaded something about, they uploaded some photos of guns and then the next thing was them going goals and it was yogurt with chocolate in it. And I was thinking we're seeing Palestinian people saying, my kidneys hurt, I don't have any fresh water. Um, We haven't eaten in days. Um, Kids being excited about catching water in cups and giving them out to people from the rain. And then we have Zionists saying to me, you have no idea what's going on. Look at this specific source. And I'm looking at the source, and the source is yogurt. <laughs> mm, mm. Not in a tahini way. You know, how, how much have you noticed that impact of Zionists versus anti-Zionists, particularly in Jewish communities? I think the media has a lot to answer for. Mm. I think the media has a lot of blood on their hands. And I think, like, we already know that these algorithms are geared in certain ways. And we know that AI is programmed with racism. Like if you go to chat GBT and you ask, do Israelis deserve, you know, have the right to live? It will say, of course, everyone has the right to live. And then when you ask, do Palestinians have a right to live? And it will say, well, this is a very complicated issue. Israel and Palestine has a long history. Like you can see it's right there. It's, it's, it's right there. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So I think the ways that these algorithms work, yeah, they do, as Bassem said, you know, they create echo chambers, they create really insular worlds where you're only fed the same narratives. And I think that there's also something really important to be spoken to about the perception of safety versus the reality of safety. And I talk about this a lot with regards to, you know, trans people and like your comfort zone not being the same as your safety zone. A lot of people will feel that if they're uncomfortable, then they're unsafe but that's just not the same thing. So, you know, an example is like you're standing next to a someone who's sleeping rough and they're, you know, muttering and talking to themselves and you feel really unsafe and so you call the police to remove them from the area. Now, who actually in that situation is unsafe? Mm. Is it the person who is made to feel uncomfortable because someone is behaving outside of the sort of social norms that they're accustomed to? Or is it the person that is literally sleeping rough on the street, does not have a shelter or house over their head? Now, I think this is a really important conversation because, yes, anti-Semitism is absolutely on the rise. And yes, it is a really scary reality. I still think we really need to talk about what it means to not know if your entire family is alive or not. Um, As a Jewish person, even though you are an anti-Zionist, are you feeling unsafe? I feel really scared speaking out about this stuff, but I feel much more scared of Zionists than I do of anyone else. I mean, no one else has called me a self-hating Jew except Zionists. No one else has compared me to Kapo, which were like the Jewish Nazis in the war, except Zionists. I, you know, I was at the protest yesterday and I spoke at the protest yesterday and I was wearing my um, watermelon yarmulke and someone came up to me and he was like, hey, are you Jewish? I was like, yeah, I am. And he like grabbed me in this big hug and gave me a kiss on the cheek. And he was like, sorry, that was probably weird. But (laughs) I just wanted to say like, (laughs) thank you so much for being here. Like it means so much to see you here. And every time I've been at pro-Palestinian demonstrations, anything like that, and have been visibly Jewish, that's the response that I've received. I've had people like wanting to take photos of my watermelon yarmulke. You know, I've had people like saying we are siblings. You know, our cultures are so similar. Our religions are so similar. Like... 
I, I have not felt, I have not experienced anti-Semitism within those spaces. Are there people, are there white supremacists who are taking advantage of this situation and jumping on, on board? Absolutely. But, you know, when we talk about anti-Semitism, like it's always existed. It's always been here. And I would really like to see where were the Zionists when Posey Parker was in Melbourne talking about anti-trans rhetoric and there were Nazis doing a Heil Hitler on the stairs behind her. Where were they showing up to trans demonstrations or rallies? Like, Nazis hate trans people, <laughs> you know? Nazis hate queer people. Nazis are not big fans of, like, of Muslims and Arabs either. They want us to kill each other. That's in their best interests. They want this fighting. I think the most, the most healed thing that we can do is build relationships for liberated futures, is to start to write what these futures can actually look like, you know, is to find our commonalities and to share ground and to see each other as the full humans that we are, you know. And, and I think a lot of it as well just comes fundamentally from people not having a decolonial lens. They, they don't want to talk about, you know, the, the colonial project of Israel because then they have to talk about the colonial project of Australia and the colonial project of the US. You know, people message me and they're like, you know you're on stolen land where you are, right? And I'm like, yes. Yeah, that's why I'm speaking <laughs> I, about it. I do, yeah. <laughs> what I, kind I of point also, is that? <laughs> I also, you know, advocate for land back here as well. Yeah. yeah. What because, do they think they're doing there when they say that? Also, I'm just going, like, yeah. Yeah. But I'm also like, fundamentally, no healing is going to be possible without Indigenous land back and Indigenous sovereignty and without Indigenous leadership and healing. I mean, we, mm -hmm. we're not going to have a planet. Like... These are the custodians of the land. These are the people who have been in relationship with this land for generations, for thousands of years. They are the ones who know. You know, I see Palestinians with the olive trees. I see that relationship to country. Like, that's what's going to save us. You know, I've seen so much talking about, you know, are we freeing Palestine or is Palestine freeing us? You know, is Palestine making us turn inward and ask these questions of our leadership? How can you stand idly by when hundreds of thousands of people are marching in the street or millions across the world? How can you do nothing? You know, how can you continue to send weaponry? If we want to talk about dealing with anti-Semitism, what would it look like if the billions of dollars that were going towards Israel's weaponry was actually going towards educational programs in schools and in mm. workplaces on, on battling anti-Semitism? My, my final question is, do you think this time from October 7th, obviously it's been happening much before then, but do you think from this kind of being the central focus of the world, really, has made people more Zionist or do you think it's changed people's minds? I do think that people are starting to change their minds. I think there's a lot of information that's out there at the moment and I think it's, you know, there's, it's just, even just watching how poor some of the propaganda is coming out of yeah. the Israeli government. I mean, I've heard that a lot of like Gen Zers are just really over it because it's really cringe as well. Yeah, I mean, I've been I've been scared to say I'm a Palestinian when I arrived to Australia because of people's reactions. Like, you know, just when I say, oh, yeah, I'm originally Palestinian and I just get like just people awkwardly standing there. And, you know, that I have been slowly whitewashed I have to say about myself. Like I've slowly had to like really reassess how I talk about things because I'm just so worried about, you know, insulting people or whatever. But it's my history. Again, it's like. Where I am, I've been displaced. If, if uh, my grandma didn't leave in 1948 from both sides, I might have been in Jerusalem now. So, but I, again, I think Australia, just being in Australia is, as you said, it is actually quite a Zionist country in general. It's also a racist country. You know, we love to believe that we're like such a progressive country or whatever, but like we just voted no on a referendum that was like pretty, you know, it wasn't even that radical to have like a, a potential a voice. voice to you know like it I don't know I think as well like it's same with marriage equality like what it was like 63 or 64 percent voted yes like I think we like to think of ourselves in this country as like very very progressive but the reality is is that as well you know where where progressivism comes from is often colonizing countries like if you if you looked at those lists of where they spoke about the places that marriage equality is legalized versus the places that they're not legalized 
a lot of those places were colonised. They were robbed. They were, you know, completely annihilated of their cultures and or attempted annihilation of their cultures. Like trans and queerness in other has existed for tens of thousands of years across every continent. You know, every different culture has different understandings of gender diversity. There are Hawaiian Mahu, Javanese Wadia. There are, you know, two-spirit people from the US from Turtle Island, there are Aboriginal brother boys and sister girls. Like There are so many different understandings of gender. But again, when you go into a place and you colonize it and you take all of its resources and its wealth and you try to you know, silence and assimilate an entire people and then leave them like that, that's not going to be the most, as we've been speaking about, progressive, wealthiest expression of, of a lived reality, you know? And so I think that like, of course we're racist here. We live on stolen land. A, a genocide, many, many genocides and massacres had to occur in order for this country to be built. Is it different from what it used to be? I don't really think so. <laughs> you know, not according to most First Nations people here. So I'm not surprised. Like, it, you know, people that are surprised by it are because that's not the reality that they live in. They're not, they're not realising the extent of it. Because yeah. of the echo chambers of... What leftism you think? Well, I think as well, you know, when people talk about all these extreme views, it's like there is so much violence that happens every day for us to live the lives that we live. Like the only reason that we live in the wealth that we do is because that wealth has been stolen from other countries. You know, the only the only reason that we have new mobile phones every, what, six months or less is because of stolen you know, nutrients and resources from other places. That's what's going on in the Congo right now. And so, you know, just because it's not right in front of your face doesn't mean that the violence isn't happening. Just because you're not like watching an animal in a slaughterhouse doesn't mean that their death wasn't, you know, traumatic while you're eating a steak. Like these things, they're just out of sight, out of mind, but there is so much violence that happens every day in order for us to live the lives that we do. And then as soon as you start speaking about that violence, that's extreme. That's violent. Mm. Eva, you're so profound and wonderful and beautiful and I'm just so grateful for you coming on the podcast and speaking so much about this and being your usual eloquent, amazing self. So thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, I really want to say as well, you know, I talk about like, maybe this is a bit too complex, but like I talk about they, them, not as a singular, but actually as a plural. Like my pronouns are actually a plural to give credit to all of the people that have made me who I am. All of my perspectives, all of my beliefs in this world, they didn't come from me. They didn't come from just this like white Jewish non-binary kid from Australia, you know, like they came from First Nations thinkers. They came from my teachers. They came from, you know, Adrian Marie Brown and Angela Davis and so many amazing aunties who have guided me, who have had their hands on my shoulders, who have taught me how to speak, you know, with grace and with integrity and with my heart in my chest. And, and I owe everything that I am to them. You know, this is not I'm so careful as well of not focusing and glorifying like my perspectives because my perspectives come from the thinking of mostly black feminist scholars and teachers and First Nations leaders. Yeah, but okay. You will still give you credit. I was about to go, you're so amazing. I was like, no, that's not what I want that. Um, but it's just like, I do think that's important, you know, like we need to, we need to turn to, I, I think we saw it happen a lot as well with like Francesca Albanese, you know, all the things that she was saying about Palestinian experience and about, she was amazing, but also the credit that she received is not the credit that Palestinians who have been talking about that very same thing for mm -hmm. 75 years have received, you know, like the accolades that I get for speaking out for a free Palestine are very, very different than what Palestinian people receive. And I do really think that there's an, a, an important conversation that needs to be had around that as well. I mean, even Bassem, Bassem's not Palestinian. No, Egyptian. So, yeah, he's Egyptian. So even him, like you said, is doing such an amazing work. But again, it's an Egyptian Because man anything I say is going to be biased. For, that's yeah. It. Anything and that I, I think say. that's actually another, I mean, God, we've gone over, but like <laughs> the idea of things being biased, when I had Bassem on, people were saying, that, well, this is a biased podcast. I go, no shit. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, like that's fine. Yeah, you want me, like yes, I am biased against the genocide of Palestinian people. Like I, I like I think the words bias, misinformation. Um, I mean, people tell me I'm biased. You know, yeah. they're like you don't you don't know enough. You obviously don't understand. It's like I every single Zionist talking point that people put forward to me are the talking points I used to use myself. Mm. Like, you think I don't know? You think I don't understand the Zionist perspective? That's my first perspective. That's my first thought. My first thought about anything is the way that I was raised and, and taught. I know. And then you self-surveil <laughs> and change. Yeah. Yeah. Like, if you have the same beliefs that you've grown up with your whole life, it's worth considering that maybe you are biased. You know, if if you do not have black friends, indigenous friends, First Nations, you know, disabled friends, trans friends, queer friends, fat friends, like if you do not have friends who have very different lived experiences from you, it is possible that maybe, just maybe, you are biased. If you haven't heard any other lived experience... I didn't know the effects of colonization and what it meant in a spiritual and generational and cultural lens and and what it means for language and what it means for connecting with music and what it means for sharing community. I didn't know what any of that meant until I actually fiercely loved people who shared their lived experience with me. That is what opened my eyes. I didn't understand ableism until I had disabled friends and I went out with them and I saw the ways that people treated them. Like, of course I didn't. So if you don't have people with different lived experiences around you, it's worth asking the question that maybe you are biased. I think we'll end it there. That's an amazing Damn. place to end it. Um, <laughs> what are your pluggables? Where can everyone find you? Um, you can find me on socials at Navozisin, N-E-V-O-Z-I-S-I-N. Um, I'm on Instagram. I'm not on TikTok. I haven't figured it out. Maybe you can teach me, Abby. Uh, you can also find my books at uh, local independent bookstores. So Finding Navo, like Finding Nevo, have a Nemo tattoo is a fun fact. Uh, that's my memoir that I wrote when I was 21. And uh, my most recent book is called The Pronoun Lowdown, came out a couple of years ago. You can also find that at local bookstores. Uh, I do a lot of performance work, poetry work, and I'm also a trans educator. So I come into schools and workplaces and run workshops on how to understand trans literacy, trans liberation, and also just pronouns and things like that. So um, I'm always available for booking as well. So please feel free to get in touch. Amazing. Links will all be in the show notes. Thank you so much. That was such a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Listener Production.